Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, November 25th, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. I pray everybody also had an excellent Thanksgiving, as we also have much to be thankful for. Tonight we're going to present part 10 of our series on Paul's epistle to the Hebrews. This is subtitled, The Internal Inheritance. And I have a rant, but I'm saving it for next week. I'm sorry. I just am. Presenting the first part of Hebrews chapter 9, we felt that we should elaborate on the common nature of sphinxes and cherubs, the importance of which should not be understated. While the first sphinx-like creatures appeared in Egyptian monuments as early as the 4th dynasty, which is perceived to have begun around 2600 B.C., which is plausible. By 1500 B.C., the sphinx was employed as the symbol, maybe by 1450 B.C., I'm rounding it out. The sphinx was employed as the symbol by which the Israelites had signified the presence of Yahweh their God. In the inner chamber of the temple, and first in the inner chamber of the tabernacle in the wilderness, and on the Ark of the Covenant. Then, after the Israelite settlement of Canaan, variations of the Hebrew cherub, or sphinx, began to appear throughout the lands surrounding the Mediterranean, as well as in the architecture of the Mesopotamian nation-states. Assyria and Persia. So the spread of these cherubs, or sphinxes, seems to coincide with the spread of the early Israelites and their influence throughout the ancient world. The sphinx, or cherub, seems to be one of the oldest Aryan religious symbols, and it is no mistake or coincidence that it was used to represent the presence of the God of Israel. To us, In my opinion, the use and spread of the sphinx, or cherub, in this manner also seems to represent the promise that Yahweh would call his son out of Egypt, the primary reference being to the children of Israel, which is found in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. It was an insurance of the continuity of the new covenant with the old. Where Paul mentions the Ark of the Covenant, we also made it a point to demonstrate that the Ark was never present during the second period, during the second temple period, and down to the time of Christ, or even to this very day. We did that to make another point. When presenting Hebrews chapter 8, we illustrated the fact that the kingdom of Judah, as well as Israel, was divorced from Yahweh God. So just because the few from Judah who returned to Jerusalem had built a new temple and continued in their traditions, does not mean that the divorce from the kingdom itself did not occur. The people of Second Temple Jerusalem had never properly constituted a kingdom, 
They were ruled over by Levites rather than by the rightful kings of Judah. And for most of their history, they were under the yoke of three of the beast empires of the prophecy of Daniel, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Furthermore, since there was no Ark of the Covenant in the temple, then there was no mercy seat. And there were no tablets of testimony, which represented the nuptial agreement between Yahweh and Israel, recorded in the book of Exodus. So during the second temple period, the priests could not have been, I'm sorry, the sacrifices could not have been effectual, according to the law, which required those things for propitiation from sin. Therefore, the people of Judea, those of the circumcision, were actually existing under the same conditions that the Israelites of the dispersions were living under, which is alienation from God with no propitiation for sin. As we have said earlier in this series of presentations, the entire purpose of the 70 weeks kingdom, as it is described in Daniel chapter 9, was to bring forth the Messiah, and in that same manner, Paul explains here that the entire purpose of the Old Covenant itself was in preparation for the Messiah, Yahshua Christ, who would exhibit the true way to life. So focusing on these smaller details, we do not want to lose sight of the more important larger picture which has been drawn by Paul of Tarsus from the beginning of this chapter. The Apostle seems to have rather passionately described the trappings of the tabernacle in the Old Covenant dispensation as if he also had a sentimental attachment to the symbols, rituals, and traditions of the nation. Doing this, perhaps he is on a better footing with his readers when he tells them that these things were only a parable for the present time, which reduces the thousand-year dispensation of the Levitical priesthood to the level of a lesson to be learned by men, as Paul himself had called it. Paul then concludes in verse 11 of chapter 9, But Christ, coming to be high priest of the coming good things, through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made by hand, that is, not of this creation, nor by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, entered once for all into the holy places, procuring eternal redemption. Now, as Paul proceeds, he shall go on to elucidate other aspects of this very circumstance, continuing with the theme which he began at the start of this chapter. For if sprinkling those who are defiled with the blood of goats and bulls, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13, and ashes of a heifer, sanctifies for purity of the flesh, by how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit has offered himself blameless to Yahweh, purify our consciences apart from dead rituals for which to serve Yahweh who lives. The act of expiation under the Old Covenant, expiation is when someone 
offers a sacrifice. Expiation does not guarantee propitiation, which is when Yahweh God approves of the sacrifice and remits or forgets one's sin, meaning to let it pass without the expected punishment. The act of expiation under the Old Covenant served to relieve one's consciousness of the guilt of sin. But as Paul inferred here, this is a merely fleshly expiation as opposed to the propitiation in Christ. The propitiation being completed, one could suppose oneself to be returned to the favor of God. But under the Old Covenant, no matter the number of sacrifices, men never ceased from sin. And the people, in their self-righteousness, vaunted themselves above their brethren, justifying themselves with their sacrifices. And this is a theme in Hosea, in Amos, in several other of the prophets. The people neglected their obligations to love their brethren. This is an oversimplification of the entire circumstance, but it was expressed by Christ himself, where on more than one occasion he quoted from Hosea, where the words of the prophet said, For I desired mercy, and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. So Christ is recorded as having said in Matthew chapter 12, But if you had known what this means, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Under the New Covenant, expiation for sin is not required, as Christ is the only propitiation. No man could make an offering to God for his sin. However, He does require his people to love their brethren and to keep his commandments. Love is keeping the commandments of God, as the Apostle John wrote in his first epistle. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. The Apostle says elsewhere that we show our love for our brethren by keeping the commandments of God. John repeated that theme several times in his epistles. Therefore, the children of Israel must know that under the system of the Old Covenant sacrifices, that under the system of the Old Covenant, they held off the wrath of God by making expiation for sin. While under the New Covenant, they gained the love of God by loving their brethren. In return, they expressed that love for their brethren by keeping the commandments of God. As Christ is recorded, as having said in John chapter 14, He that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. And he that loves me shall be loved of my Father. And I will love him, and I will manifest myself to him. Love is not kissing your brother's ass. Love is keeping the commandments of God. The sacrifice of Christ represented the love of God for his people, where he died on their behalf, the devotion of his life on the altar of God in service to his brethren. In this manner, the blood of Christ is far superior to the blood of the Old Testament sacrifices. Where men are shown the true path to the love of God, 
in turn by devoting their lives to the brethren. Furthermore, it must be known that the common morality founded in the commandments of God in this scripture is not for the health of the individual only, but for the health of the community. When a man sins, he sins against the community, not only for what he has done, but also for what he has neglected. The Israelites under the Old Covenant never ceased from sin, so the entire community was ultimately destroyed. The righteous along with the wicked, as we read in Ezekiel chapter 21. Thus saith Yahweh, Behold, I am against thee, and will draw forth my sword out of its sheath, and will cut off from thee the righteous and the wicked. Repeating verses 13 and 14 of this chapter of Hebrews, so that we may discuss other aspects of the passage. For if sprinkling those who are defiled with the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sanctifies for purity of the flesh, by how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit has offered himself blameless to Yahweh, purify our consciences, apart from dead rituals, for which to serve Yahweh who lives. In our commentaries on Paul's epistle to the Romans and to the Galatians, epistles, I'm sorry, and especially in Galatians chapter 2, we have asserted that by the phrase, <coughs> works of the law, Paul meant to refer not to the commandments of which the transgression is sin, but to the rituals and sacrifices and ceremonies of the law. Here our assertion is vindicated, and where Paul mentions works in this context, for this reason we translate the word as rituals, dead rituals, not simply dead works, as we also had in those other epistles. Many foolish commentators have contended that Paul taught men to do away with the law itself, but if that were true, he would not have spoken of the need to abstain from sin, since he himself said in Romans chapter 5 that sin is not imputed when there is no law. Then in Romans chapter 6 he wrote, What then shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid. And then further on in Romans chapter 7 he said, Nay, I had not known sin but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. And although there are many other examples in Paul's writing, this progression of statements in Romans proves that Paul upheld the commandments of God as he exhorted men not to sin and informed them that sin is known by the law. So how could Paul set aside the law? That's a lie. Here we should also put our lives into Christian perspective. Even many identity Christians place far too much value on their fates and trials in this life, when they should be focused on loving their brethren and their fate in a life to come. And if we think lightly of a life to come, then there is no point in even trying to understand Christianity at all. If Paul of Tarsus can reduce the meaning of the entire thousand-year dispensation of the Levitical priesthood to the level of a parable, then we must understand that the lessons learned by us here in this life 
are of more value than this life itself, since there is indeed a greater purpose to our being here than this life alone. For that reason, among other things, Christ said, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. And several times in his gospel, Christ urged men to do certain things if they would enter into life. For the Christian, death is an entrance into life. And therefore, the meaning of this life can be reduced to serve us as a parable. The Old Testament rituals were required by Yahweh God for temporary propitiation, so as to avoid the punishment for sin. But they themselves did not remove sin. Rather, we may esteem them a part of the greater lesson that man cannot save himself, and therefore man should seek to be obedient to God. Therefore, Paul continues in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, and for this reason he, meaning Christ, is a mediator of a new covenant, so that from death resulting in redemption of the transgressions against the first covenant, that's the purpose of Christ, redemption of the transgressions against the first covenant, transgressions which only the children of Israel made, and nobody else can be redeemed because nobody else is in the context of that redemption. So that from death, resulting in redemption of the transgressions against the first covenant, those having been invited would receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. And rather than those having been invited, the King James Version has, they which are called, they which are called, a translation which leaves the impression that perhaps the calling may be ongoing, or even occur at some point in the future. The phrase hoi kekleimenoi is a substantive formed from a plural participle of the perfect tense. In other words, it's the whole perfect tense. In other words, it describes a plural entity which had already been called and not one which may be called at some point in the future. The root verb kaleo is to call, to summons, or to invite, and therefore we chose invite because we thought that was the most explicit meaning. As Paul cited Jeremiah in Hebrews chapter 8, the new covenant was made with the house or family of Israel, and the house or family of Judah, and nobody else was ever called to be invited to be a partaker. This Paul had also written in Romans chapter 8, where he said, But we know that to those who love Yahweh, all things work together in good, for good. To those who, in accordance with purpose, are called, already called, because those whom he has known beforehand, he has also appointed beforehand, conformed to the image of his Son, so the calling had already happened, for him to be firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, those whom he has appointed beforehand, these he also calls, and those whom he calls, these he also deems worthy. 
So he only calls those people who he had appointed beforehand. And here that word for called is in the perfect tense, as if the calling was already completed and not to be made at some point in the future. In Amos chapter 3, we read the same purpose which Paul explains here in Hebrews of Christ, where the word of Yahweh says, Hear this word that Yahweh has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all of your iniquities. That should be immediately cross-referenced to so that death resulting in redemption of the transgressions against the first covenant, those having been invited, would receive the promise of the internal inheritance. And that should be cross-referenced to Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. So Paul says here that the death of Christ is for the redemption of the transgressions against the first covenant. And there is no other reason given for his death, as this is the reason that Christ died for sin. And we would cross-reference that to Isaiah chapter 53. Since only Israel had the law, only Israel was imputed with sin, and only Israel was redeemed in Christ, and only Israel has the promise of the eternal inheritance. The last 26 chapters of the book of the prophet Isaiah are addressed to the Israelites as they were scattered, having been written as the deportations of Israel were underway. In chapter 41, Isaiah explicitly informs us who was called and who was chosen, where the word of Yahweh says, But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend, thou whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called thee, past tense, from the chief men thereof, and said unto thee, Thou art my servant, I have chosen thee, past tense, and not cast thee away. So once again, only those scattered Israelites of the houses of Israel and Judah may constitute those having been invited, who would receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Throughout his epistles, Paul informs us that all of the promises of God are fulfilled to the people who were under the Old Covenant, the ancient children of Israel, and not denominational Christianity, claiming to derive many of its doctrines from the epistles of Paul, while they consistently deny what Paul had written. As Moses was the mediator of the new covenant, which Paul infers in Hebrews chapter 8, now Christ is the mediator, I'm sorry, Moses was the mediator of the old covenant, which Paul infers in Hebrews chapter 8. Now Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, and in several ways he explicitly states that the new covenant is made with those same people who failed to keep the old covenant. The children of Israel are the heirs of the covenant, but there are some denominational churches which attempt to designate Christ as the heir of the new covenant, and that is not true. 
Then they claim that anyone who believes in Jesus can be an heir with him, no matter their race or origin, and that is not true. If it were true, then in effect God would have made a covenant a covenant with himself alone and nullified the promises to Abraham, which Paul says are to Abraham's offspring and are sure to all of Abraham's offspring. Christ may be the heir of all things, as Paul had attested here in Hebrews chapter 1, but he is not the heir of the covenant except in the sense that he, as firstborn, is therefore chief among the heirs of the covenant, because the promise is not simply to Abraham's direct heir, but to Abraham's offspring in the plural, as we shall see. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul said, Brethren, I speak as befits a man. Even a validated covenant of man no one sets aside, or makes additions to for himself. Now to Abraham the promises have been spoken, and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings as of many, but as of one, and to your offspring, which are anointed. The denominational churches claim that Christ is the single seed of promise, but that is not true. Isaac is the seed of promise. As Paul explains in Romans chapter 9, in verse 7, verses 7 and 8, nor because they are offspring of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac will your offspring be called. That is to say, the children of the flesh, these are not the children of Yahweh, but the children of the promises are counted as the offspring. In that passage of Romans 9, the singular Greek word for seed, sperma, is used collectively of a plurality of children. And so it is in Galatians chapter 3, where Paul contrasts groups of children. In both Romans 9 and Galatians 3, Paul is narrowing the children of the promise down to the children of Isaac, and then to, to Jacob. In Galatians 3.15, the many excluded seeds are those of Ishmael, the sons of Keturah, and Esau, which Paul explains in Romans 9. These discounted seeds are children of the flesh, but the promise was only carried through Isaac and through Jacob, for various reasons seen in the accounts of Genesis. That's what Paul describes in Galatians chapter 3. So we see in that passage of Romans chapter 9 that there are children of the promise in Jacob, children described as the seed, and not merely a single child. Further on in Galatians chapter 3, Paul also said that the covenant was confirmed in Christ, explaining that Christ is the mediator, and that it was given to Abraham. There he said in verse 18, for if from law, the inheritance is no longer from promise. But to Abraham, through a promise, Yahweh has given it freely. This meant that the keeping of the Old Testament law was not a requirement to receive the inheritance. So Abraham is the recipient or heir of the covenant, and the promise is passed on to his seed, that plurality of seed where Paul says, children, in Romans 9.8. 
the promises pass on to his seed through Isaac and Jacob. That the heirs are the collective offspring of Abraham is evident in Galatians 3.20, where Paul said, And the mediator is not of one, but Yahweh is one. So there is more than one individual being delivered the covenant by the mediator. Paul then made a conditional statement which expresses a factual implication where he said in Galatians chapter 3 verse 29 that but if you are Christ's then of the offspring of Abraham you are heirs according to the promise. Therefore if one is not of the offspring of Abraham having the promises then one is not of Christ. Both ends of the factual implication. Both of the conditions in the factual implication have to be true. There are different types of conditional statements. You can't claim to be of Christ's if you're not of the offspring of Abraham. Explaining the promise to Abraham in Romans chapter 4, Paul confirms this, where he had attested that then the promise is to be certain to all of the offspring, not to that of the law only, but also to that of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Paul wasn't saying that Abraham was the father of all the people on the planet. Paul was saying that Abraham was the father of himself, and all the Romans to whom he was writing. You cannot go outside of the context of the epistle to the Romans and apply that statement to Chinamen and Negroes or anybody else who's not of the seed of Abraham. The children of Israel in their dispersions had not kept the law, but they were still the recipients of the promise. Abraham was indeed the forefather of Hebrews and Romans alike, and also of the Galatians, and the other recipients of his epistles, all of whom had descended from the ancient Israelites. Then Paul speaks of Abraham in that same place in Romans 4, and says, Who contrary to expectation, in expectation believed, for which he would become a father of many nations, according to the declaration, Thus your offspring will be. It didn't say that many nations would be his offspring. It says his offspring will be many nations. And Paul had taught this very thing to all of the people to whom he had written epistles. That they were the literal descendants of the Old Testament Israelites. And for that reason, they were the heirs to the covenants of God. In the formative centuries of modern Europe, from as early as 1600 B.C., the promises to Abraham were slowly being fulfilled, that his seed would become many nations. This is regardless of the fact that other related peoples were already inhabiting parts of Europe, something which is described in Genesis chapter 10. Paul continues in relation to the Testaments. For where there is a testament, it is necessary to endure the death of the testator. A testament is certain in death, since never would it avail when the testator lives. And this is, this passage has always been problematical to New Testament practicers of exegesis. I won't try to say exegesists. Maybe I could. The word was, the word which was translated as testament on two occasions here 
is diatheke, Strong's number 1242, which is covenant nearly everywhere else that it appears. It's the word in New Testament, however, and Old Testament. That word diatheke appears in the Septuagint and other Greek writings. The word is used with both meanings, covenant and will, in secular Greek writings, as well as here in this epistle to the Hebrews, where the context clearly exhibits the, the, the usage. The word testator is from a verbal form of the same word, which is diatithemi, Strong's number 1303. I'm sorry, diatithemahi, perhaps. Diatithame, diatithamahi. You could argue about that. Here Paul employs the word diatheke in the sense of a will, as the word diatithame, as it is used here, refers to the testator or someone who is making a will. There is contention among some commentators that the equivalent Hebrew word bereath does not have the same signification. Even if that was true, it is immaterial, since Paul may only be taking advantage of the Greek use of the term while averring that Yahweh God had to die in order to fulfill the covenant promises. Paul does, after all, employ the Septuagint in his citations of the Old Testament. However, on the other hand, there are indications in Scripture that the eldest son, or the designated heir, did by custom inherit the covenants made by his father, and therefore, being enforced, they serve under the expression of a will. This is evident in 1 Kings chapter 15, and one King, this passage in 1 Kings chapter 15 is much more complex, and I can discuss the whole thing, but I will only discuss one aspect of it here. In 1 Kings chapter 15, in the King James Version, the word bereath for covenant is translated as league. It should have probably been translated as covenant. There it is expressed that the sons of David and Hiram inherited the covenant made by their respective fathers. It is also evident in the succession of kings from David to Solomon and beyond, based on the covenant which David had made with the princes of Israel in 2 Samuel chapter 5, where the word for covenant is again translated as league. <coughs> David made a covenant with the princes of Israel, and David's son naturally inherited the kingdom, because the covenant would pass to him. David made a covenant with Hiram, and the agreement of friendship which they had automatically passed down to their sons. Thus the word bereath, where it is used in relation to the concepts of the covenant and the promises of inheritance, must have also had the signification which Paul uses here in relation to the Greek word diatheke. Yahshua Christ is God manifest in the flesh, and unless this primary concept is understood, neither this passage here in Hebrews nor the opening passage of Romans chapter 7 can be understood.
Neither can many passages in the prophets be understood, such as Hosea 2.19 and 20, where Yahweh promises to betroth Israel forever. But in the New Testament, Yahshua Christ is the bridegroom. As Paul explains in Romans chapter 7, Christ, being Yahweh God manifest in the flesh, had released Israel the wife from the judgments of the law by dying so that she would be released from the law of the husband. Therefore he is both father and son. The old covenant was the only way by which Yahweh chose to I'm sorry, the Old Covenant was only the way by which Yahweh chose to organize and preserve Israel in order to keep the promises to Abraham. The promises made under the Old Covenant were conditional upon Israel's behavior and Israel failed. Because Israel sinned, Yahweh is under no obligation to uphold his end of the bargain as his promises to Israel in Exodus chapter 19 and beyond were all conditional. But the promises to Abraham were unconditional. And as Paul had explained in Galatians chapter 3, they could not be annulled by the law, which came several centuries later. Paul says 430 years later. So the new covenant is not dependent on the old covenant. Nor is the New Covenant derived from the Old Covenant. Rather, both the Old and the New Covenants represent different stages of the keeping of the promises to Abraham by God and are methods by which he chose to organize and preserve the children of the promises. And just because some men have attempted to include other people in that promise does not change the intentions of God, since the promises are only intended for Abraham's legitimate seed. Likewise, wicked men attempted to admit the enemies of God among the Israelites of the Old Covenant, and they also failed. The punishment for that has not changed according to the law, the commandments which we are supposed to keep. So here is where Christ had to die. He was compelled to, I'm sorry, here is where Yahweh had to die. He was compelled to keep the promises to Abraham. And this has a twofold perspective. After the manner in which covenants were made in the ancient world, the parties to the covenant were bound to death if they failed to keep their oaths in the ceremony conducted when they passed through the divided pieces of an animal. So we read in Genesis chapter 15, And Abram said, and this same type of, of, um, this same type of ceremony is seen in ancient inscriptions among some of the other surrounding nations. And Abram said, Behold, to me, Thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is my heir. Speaking of Eleazar the steward, and Eleazar the steward was not Abraham's direct seed or direct offspring, so Yahweh rejected this idea. And behold, the word of Yahweh came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad, and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars, 
if thou be able to number them. And he said unto them, unto him, so shall thy seed be. And he, meaning Abraham, believed in Yahweh. And he counted, he, meaning Yahweh, counted it to him for righteousness. And he said unto him, I am Yahweh that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees, to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Yahweh God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And he said unto him, Take me a heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all of these, and divided them in the midst, cut them in two, and laid each piece one against another. But the birds divided he not. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, who's not yet named Abraham. And lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto him, Abram, know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them. And they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward they shall come out with a great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, and shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it came to pass that the sun went down, and it was dark. Behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces, representing God passing between the pieces of the animal, in order to seal his own death, or the worthiness of his own death, if he broke his end of the covenant, where Abraham never passed between the pieces. In the same day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abraham, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. So Yahweh passed between those pieces as a smoking furnace and a burning lamp. This act of passing through the pieces of a divided animal to keep a covenant is mentioned again in Jeremiah chapter 34. There it is described that the men of Jerusalem had made such a covenant with God, and that they would be destroyed because they broke it. And there we read, Therefore thus saith Yahweh, You have not hearkened unto me in proclaiming liberty, every one to his brother, and every man to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim a liberty for you, saith Yahweh, to the sword, to the pestilence, and to the famine, and I will make you to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth. And I will give the men that have transgressed my covenant, which have not performed the words of the covenant which they had made before me, when they cut the calf in twain, and passed between the parts thereof. The princes of Judah and the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs and the priests and all the people of the land, which passed between the parts of the calf. I will even give them into the hand of their enemies." and into the hand of them that seek their life, and their dead bodies shall be for meat under the fowls of the heaven and to the beasts of the earth. They made a covenant with God. They passed through the two parts of the calf in order to profess their own fate, that they were worthy of death 
if they violated the terms of the covenant that they had made with God. So that's what Yahweh did when he passed through those parts of the animals that he had Abraham arrange. The promises of Genesis chapter 15 only represent some of the promises made to Abraham, but they were made without condition. And Yahweh had passed through the parts of the divided animal, but Abraham did not. So there is no condition upon Abraham. Nothing is required of him, and everything is required of Yahweh. So Yahweh God cannot back out of fulfilling these promises for any reason unless he would break his promise to Abraham. Either way, Yahweh had to die. He had to die by his oath if he failed to keep his promise. And he had to die by his law if he wanted to keep his promise. Of course, Yahweh chose to die in order to keep the promises to Abraham and at the same time to reconcile himself to Israel by releasing the wife from the law of the husband so the nation avoided the penalty of death which it faced under that law. With a divorced wife, Deuteronomy chapter 25, it's an abomination for Yahweh or, or for a man to take back a divorced wife who had been with another husband. Israel was divorced and continued to play the harlot. So Yahweh couldn't take Israel back as a wife unless he could die to fulfill the law. Furthermore, the law having been fulfilled with the death of the husband, Yahweh being eternal, met the conditions of the law while, because he is God, while having the opportunity to be reconciled with Israel the wife in the promised new covenant. And here, based on the meaning of the Greek words diatithema, diatheke, and dia, or dia, I should probably say, diatithemahi, Paul takes the explanation, explanation one step further. He is certainly correct that the covenants of God could not be fulfilled unless God himself died as a man, which is what he had done in Christ. The death of God in Christ ensures the inheritance of creation is left to Abraham according to the covenants which God made with Abraham. But the acquisition and maintenance of that inheritance is assured through Christ, who is both a descendant of Abraham and Yahweh God himself. Only in that understanding can it be explained, according to the law of God, just how Christ had died so that anyone of Israel could be forgiven for their sins, and how God had died to ensure the covenant promises describing the inheritance of Abraham. Once it is fully understood, this multidimensional meaning of the death of Yahweh in Christ has an awesome aspect, is an awesome aspect of the Word of God. Paul continues by contrasting the covenants, where in relation to the blood and death of Christ in the new covenant, he says, whereupon neither had the first been consecrated without blood. For each commandment spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, taking the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet and wool and hyssop. He sprinkled both the scroll itself and all the people, saying, 
This is the blood of the covenant which Yahweh has enjoined you to. Here Paul cites Exodus chapter 24 verse 8. Reading the wider passage, we shall see that the fulfillment of the Old Covenant required a profession of obedience from the people. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people. And they said, all that Yahweh has said we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant, which Yahweh has made with you concerning all these words. So Paul continues with his description. And the tabernacle, verse 21 of Hebrews chapter, chapter 9, and the tabernacle, and then all the vessels of the service, he sprinkled with blood in like manner. And almost anything is purified in blood according to the law, and apart from bloodshed there comes no remission. Notice that Paul said that almost anything is purified in blood according to the law. The things which could not be reconciled through atonement were commanded to be destroyed, for which reason some sins required the death of the sinner. So apart from blood, either in expiation or in death, there was no remission for sin. The ultimate sin of the children of Israel was their fornication and idolatry, both physical and spiritual intermingling with the gods and people of other nations. So it says in Jeremiah chapter 2, For my people have committed two evils, not one, but two. So this isn't just about idolatry, it's something more important along with idolatry. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. And it also says in Hosea chapter 5, They have dealt treacherously against Yahweh, for they have begotten strange children. Now shall a month devour them with their portions. These two passages of the prophets are describing the same sins. These sins of idolatry and fornication could not be expiated under the law. As the law demands the death of the sinner, all of Israel had sinned and therefore all of Israel were under the penalty of death. But if Yahweh destroyed all of Israel, he could not keep the promises made to Abraham, which superseded the Old Covenant. So he died for Israel, fulfilling the law of the husband by releasing the wife from its penalties, so that he could make a new covenant in Christ and betroth himself to Israel through Christ. Doing this, he is able to forgive and reconcile Israel while keeping the promises to Abraham and keeping his own law, which he actually takes much more seriously than we do. In this manner is the fulfillment of the law, the prophets, as well as the promises to the fathers. So it is not that Christ came to end the law, or merely to replace the old covenant. Rather, by precisely keeping the law, Christ exhibited the elements of the law which transcend the old covenant. And Christ did not come to keep the old covenant, but rather he came to keep the Abrahamic covenant. 
which also transcends the Old Covenant. So it says in Luke chapter 1, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. This is the purpose of the coming of the Messiah. To perform the mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, not the oath he swore to Moses, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. These words were attributed to Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. As for the Jews, it is they who killed John the Baptist, who killed Zacharias, and who killed Christ. And they despised the offer of mercy and the promises to the fathers. So therefore, they must be among the enemies from which Zacharias had hoped to be delivered. Now, speaking of the blood required for remission of sins, Paul wrote from verse 23, So it is a necessity indeed for these patterns of the things in the heavens to be purified by these means. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ entered not into the holy places made by hand, representations of the true, but into heaven itself to appear now in the presence of Yahweh on our behalf. In chapter 3 of his first epistle, the Apostle John wrote, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knows us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. So being sons of God, although it does not yet appear what we shall be, we must know that the ceremonial paradigms of the Old Testament congregation were only a model or pattern of the things in the heavens, and they were not the heavenly things themselves. However, being sons of God, where Christ said in Luke chapter 6, the disciple is not above his master, but every one that is perfected shall be as his master. We must know that he has brought us further along the path to making those better sacrifices of which Paul speaks. Under the laws of the Old Covenant, men who sinned made reparations to their brethren and offered sacrifices to God hoping for propitiation for their sin. With Christ and the New Covenant, Men express their love for one another by keeping the law and make their sacrifices to their brethren by helping to provide for their fleshly as well as their spiritual needs. As it is written in Luke chapter 19, the sinner Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore to him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, this day is salvation come to this house, for as much as he also is the son of Abraham. 
So we have several conditions there. One of them is being a son of Abraham. But the other half is to earn treasure in heaven by doing righteously by your brethren. Nor that, verse 25, nor that he should present himself often just as the high priest enters into the holy places each year with another's blood, since it was necessary for him to suffer often from the foundation of the society, then now once in the consummation of the ages he has appeared for an abolition of wrongdoing through his sacrifice. We are going to present these verses, 25 and 26, in segments, as there are several important aspects to Paul's words which must be considered carefully. The beginning of verse 25 says, Nor that he should present himself often. Christ did not have to present himself often, but as Paul shall explain, only once for all time. It was the high priests who had to present themselves often nor that he should present himself often, just as the high priest enters into the holy places each year with another's blood, meaning with the blood of the animals. Since it was necessary for him to suffer often from the foundation of the society. Now where it says, since, where it says, necessary for him to suffer often. Our New Testament have erroneously capitalized the word for him, which relates to the high priest and not to Christ. We have just made the correction, and we have also removed a dash from the punctuation, deciding that we do not really require the additional emphasis. The high priests of Israel had to enter into the holy places often, as they were commanded to do so once each year, from the foundation of the world, or society. This confuses all the translators. The King James Version used the word world here as a translation of the Greek word cosmos. This serves to demonstrate that the world is not the planet, but only the organization of the children of Israel into a society, as we usually translate cosmos in the Christogenian New Testament. Now, if the high priests started making their sacrifices, the Levitical high priests, if they started making their sacrifices in the temple of Yahweh in Genesis, this might be a different story. Paul's talking about the Levitical high priests, and the foundation of the society wasn't in Genesis. According to these words written by Paul of Tarsus, the world of which he speaks, which was founded from the foundation of the society, when the Levitical was founded when the Levitical priesthood was organized and given the law. So the world which Paul describes is only the world of the children of Israel. And according to scripture, because no one else was given the law, the high priests were only making sacrifices on behalf of the children of Israel. The high priests had to suffer this act of sacrifice once per year from the foundation of the society. So the society was founded back in Exodus chapter 19. As a digression, 
we must say that in fact, for all those who would insist that we follow the King James Version, in Job chapter 37, verses 11 and 12, we read, and this is for those King James-only people out there, also by watering the wearieth, I'm sorry, also by watering he wearieth the thick cloud, he scattereth his bright cloud, and it is turned round about by his counsels, that they may do whatsoever he commands them upon the face of the world in the earth that they may do whatsoever he commands them upon the face of the world in the earth. So according to such reasoning found in the King James translation of Job chapter 37 verse 12, the world is in the earth, but the world is not the earth itself. With that, we would certainly agree. This is just an example picked out because it suits our needs. In the final passage of the in the final clause of this passage, Paul contrasts the high priest who had to perform the sacrifices often to the Christ who only had to perform his sacrifice once. Then, meaning at Paul's time, speaking generally of the time of Christ, then, now, once in the consummation of the ages, he has appeared for an abolition of wrongdoing through his sacrifice. The first three words, then, now, once, are taken from the literal meanings of three Greek words, nuni de hapax, which in the original word order is now, then, once. However, the Greek word de is always written second in the order of the clause, and at the same time it marks the beginning of the clause, whereby in our language we must give it the first place, and by this we also know that here we have a new clause which must be understood in contrast to the clause it prece which precedes because de has an ad has an adversarial sense so for that reason the phrase from the foundation of the society belongs with the previous clause and not with this clause. Most denominational translations have that aspect of the translation correct, although they nevertheless fail to understand the meaning of the previous clause, that it doesn't refer to Christ, it refers to the high priests. The meaning which Paul assigns here to the sacrifice of Christ is substantiated in part by the prophet Daniel, who wrote of the purpose of the seventy weeks kingdom that would culminate in the coming of Messiah the Prince, that it was to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and the prophecy and to anoint the most holy. The certainty of the fulfillment of this prophecy in Yahshua Christ is found in the history of the first century Judea and the crucifixion itself, as Daniel went on to prophecy of the cutting off of the Messiah, the duration of his ministry, and the destruction of the city in the aftermath. All of this happened within the framework of time which Daniel's prophecy had also provided, and therefore no other Messiah can be expected. Christ had to make one sacrifice to bring in reconciliation for iniquity and everlasting righteousness. And Paul continues in verse 27.
and inasmuch as it is reserved for men to die once, and judgment after that, so also Christ had been offered once to make contribution for the errors of many. He shall appear a second time apart from errors, and those who look to him, to those who look to him for preservation. Just as Paul had written to the Corinthians in chapter 15 of his first epistle to them, that just as in Adam all men die, then in that manner in Christ shall all be produced alive. So he states here to the Hebrews, In the promises of preservation to Abraham, the old Adamic world had passed away. Nearly all of the Adamic nations of Genesis chapter 10 were already passed away or no longer recognizable by the time of Christ. But by the time of Christ, the promises to Abraham had been fulfilled, and the people, people with names not found in the Old Testament, such as the Germanic Galatahi, the Parthians, and the Romans, had come to dominate the world. These, as well as some others, were the seed of Abraham through whom the Adamic race was promised preservation and ultimate salvation. Paul explains the bigger picture in Romans chapter 5, where he writes that, from verse 12, For this reason, just as by one man sin entered into the society, and by that sin death, and in that manner death is passed to all men, on account that all have sinned. For until the law sin was in the society, but sin was not accounted, there not being law. But death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned resembling the transgression of Adam, who as is an image of the future, but should not, as was the transgression, in that manner also be the favor. Indeed, if in the transgression of one many die, much greater is the favor of Yahweh and the gift in favor, which is of the one man, Yahshua Christ, in which many have great advantage. And not then by one having sinned is the gift. Indeed, the fact is that the judgment of a single one is for condemnation. That's a reference to Christ himself. But the favor is from many transgressions, many transgressions into a judgment of acquittal. For if in the transgression of one, death has taken reign through that one, much more is the advantage of the favor and the gift of justice they are receiving in life they will reign through one, Yahshua Christ. So then, as that one transgression, meaning the sin of Adam, is for all men for a sentence of condemnation, in this manner then, through one decision of judgment, the decision of Christ to die for his people, for all men is for a judgment of life. There are no exceptions. Therefore, even as through the disobedience of one man the many were set down as sinners, in this manner then, through the obedience of one, Christ, the many will be established as righteous. Moreover, law entered in addition that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, favor exceeded beyond measure, that just as sin reigned in death, so then favor shall reign through justice for eternal life through Yahshua Christ our Prince. So the promises to Abraham were made for an even greater purpose, that God could eventually demonstrate his righteousness to the entire Adamic race and restore that race to the destiny for which it was originally created. The original appointment of men to die is found in the original transgression, as part of the resulting punishment explained in Genesis 3.19. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, 
till thou return unto the ground, for out of it thou wast taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shall thou return. But at the same time the Adamic race was promised a return path. And the preservation of that path, in that same chapter of Genesis where it says a little further on, And Yahweh God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil, and now lest he put forth his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. Therefore Yahweh God sent him forth from the garden of Eden, to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims, or sphinxes, and a flaming sword which turned every way, to keep the way of the tree of life. The tree of life is Christ. And in the end, it is the only tree found in the city of God, described in Revelation chapter 22. As he explains in John chapter 15 that he is the vine, and tells his disciples that they are the branches. The cherubim, or sphinxes, are as ancient as the fall of Adam. And they guard the path by which Adam may ultimately return to the Garden of Eden, which represents communion with God, and in turn is represented by the inner chamber of the Temple of Yahweh, where there were two large cherubs, or two large sphinxes. Thousands of years later, the Temple and the Ark of the Covenant wherein the law was kept, were adorned with those same cherubim. Because ultimately, the keeping of the law of God is the path back to Eden and communion with God. The cherubim were placed at the east end of the garden, because that is where the sun rises, which is also a symbolic prophecy of Christ. that man dies and is then judged, demonstrates the continued existence of the Adamic spirit on an ethereal plane, for which Christ was said by Peter as having preached the gospel to the dead while in the bowels of the earth. But to achieve reconciliation with God, only Christ, being a man as well as being God himself, could enter into the heavenly places on behalf of man. As Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the resurrection is obtained by those having that eternal spirit, those of the surviving Adamic race, the children of Abraham through Jacob Israel, who have expectation in Christ, will indeed see the victory of Christ at his return, at which time the ultimate communion and the consummation of all of these covenants shall be achieved. That is the eternal inheritance. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.